Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, not only was Kai Oppenman the first pensions minister to last, I believe, five years in office, I think he's also the first to have left the job twice in three months, having confirmed he was relieved of his duties on September the 8th. At the time of recording, there is no new pensions minister in place, but we'll take a quick look back at what's been accomplished during Opperman's tenure and then forward at what the next minister, whoever they may be, will have to put up with. Uh, next on the list, one of Opperman's last pronouncements in office concerning 12 million people he said are undersaving for retirement. Uh, he gave his opinion in a letter to Work and Pensions Committee Chair Stephen Timms, in which he said that auto-enrolment would naturally have made it more likely that people were saving, uh, even if that 12 million figure still accounts for some 38% of the nation's working age population. So we'll ask what could be done about that. And then finally, trouble is brewing in Thurrock, wherever Thurrock is, with the revelation that a quirky-seeming solar farm investment project, which a number of local councils and pension funds were invested in, might in fact have been at least a little bit dodgy and lost some hundreds of thousands or millions even of taxpayers' money. Uh, so we'll ask just what's going on with that. Uh, I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter at Pensions Experts, and since we will be talking about a former pensions minister, we are joined today by another former pensions minister, LCP partner, Sir Steve Webb, and thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Fantastic. So I think we'll, um, yes, we'll kick off with the minister's resignation or his, his defenestration, depending on how you choose to interpret that. He's been in office for five years. There's been quite a lot on, I think, in his letter, his resignation letter, he said that no minister has put more bills through Parliament over the last sort of period of time or short period of time. So I thought I'd sort of start by asking you, Steve, to sort of do a retrospective and sort of give your opinion on how Opperman's tenure sort of panned out so far. I know some people have been a little bit frustrated about some of the things that have happened, but some people have been quite positive about the stability that he brought. Where do you sort of stand in that? Um, I suppose the case for the defence, as it were, is that when you get someone imposed for five years, you do get chance not simply to pick up things that were already happening, but to stamp your own your own personality and your own agenda. And so, you know, back in the day when pensions ministers lasted 15 months, they just about worked out how pensions work and how to be a minister, and then they were moved. Whereas Guy Opperman did have chance to say, well, actually, I like CDC, I care about um, the climate change and those sorts of things. Uh, I want to drive forward the dashboard. And so he was able to not just, you know, pick up the things that Richard Harrington and Ros Altman and I had left him, but do his own thing. And, and I think there are things that clearly he drove forward. I think he, he had the frustration that all ministers have, which is that very often, you know, you get criticised for not doing something and very often you'd love to do it quicker, but you're hamstrung by the Treasury or the legislative timetable or Brexit or COVID or whatever. So sometimes some of the criticism I think is unfair because, you know, often the minister who's being criticised is sitting there thinking, I agree. You know, I, I would sometimes be criticised for things and think, yeah, I quite agree. I'd be saying the same thing sitting where you're sitting, but you don't have to deal with the Treasury. So I think it's a little bit unfair, perhaps, to criticise for some of the things that didn't happen, which perhaps he was trying to do. And there have been positive things. I mean, you know, but some of them are just so long term. So take the dashboard. We have got legislation. We have now got draft secondary legislation. Schemes are now preparing. We probably will go live in 2024 or 2025. You know, I think it will happen now which you probably wouldn't have said five years ago. So I think that will be a win. But my goodness, it takes a long time to deliver things. CDC, you know, I first legislated for CDC in 2015. Now, credit to Guy Opperman, he actually got an actual employer to actually do it, uh, you know, whereas my framework was very kind of provisional and, and quite high level. So credit for that. That hasn't even started yet. Uh, and we still haven't got the framework for multi-employer CDC. So, you know, the new minister, who I assume is Alex Burgart, but hasn't been formally announced yet, will pick up an awful lot of things going on. 
I, I suppose the, the case of the prosecution really would be that actually Gartham got sidetracked quite easily. You sort of sense that sometimes someone would sit next to him at dinner and whisper a bright idea and suddenly he'd rush into the department and that was the thing. The statement season was the classic genre of the genre, you know, the kind of, we're all going to get our statements within a few weeks and we're going to sit down with a mug of cocoa and go through these paper-based statements and make informed decisions, which is always rubbish and kind of slightly naive about how pension schemes work in administration. And so he gets sidetracked by that when the elephant in the room was not enough money going into DC. You know, a 2017 auto-enrolment review, which five years on, we are no nearer to seeing implemented. The crisis of undersaving, which we'll come on to in a moment, is five years worse. And if you started pension saving under auto-enrolment in your 40s or early 50s, actually the clock's ticking. And you can't afford another five wasted years. So, you know, I think when I started as a minister, one of my officials said to me, make the main thing the main thing. Decide what you really want to achieve. Prioritise that. Tell your civil servants that's the thing that you really want to achieve. And I think if Garfield on day one had said, DC saving, getting more money in, we'd be in a better place now than what actually happened. Sure thing. Of course, one of his... um. I guess he would he would claim it as one of his principal legislative achievements would be say the Pension Schemes Act. I think there was talk around the time that there might be another one of those sort of coming down the line in relatively short order just to address some other some other issues. I guess we, we are sort of moving toward now the, the point where we're, you know, what the next pensions minister will be looking to do. Do you think that there is a case for another Pension Schemes Act that the new minister should prioritise? And if so, what, what should be in it? Or would that be another one of those sort of big boondoggle distractions and actually... Should we be a little bit more focused than that? Well, there are certainly outstanding business. So the obvious one would be something like super funds. You know, we don't have a legislative framework for DB consolidators and, and we ought to have one. Uh, so that would be in the in-tray. You know, legislation for legislation's sake is never a great idea. When you haven't fully implemented the last one, doing the next one seems a bit premature. So I think focusing on the DB funding regime arising from the 2021 Act, which we don't yet have. You know, we've had a consultation on some DB regs. The TPR have got to do their second round funding code consultation, probably another year before all of that's implemented. So I'm not sure another Act is really what we're crying out for. However, the new minister needs to take a long look at this emerging DB framework and say, do you know what? This was born in 2015. Does it look right in 2023? It was born off the back of Carillion and Philip Green and BHS and all those kind of things. And the something must be done about bad employers who don't fund their pension schemes properly. Here we are in 2023 when every month pensions expert will write a story about the PPF's latest soaring surplus numbers. Yeah, of course, there are schemes that are underfunded, but is the new regime fit for purpose anymore? I'm not sure it actually is. So in a way, I think the the new minister should first of all say, look, I don't have all this emotional baggage. I haven't spent five years developing this thing. Let's take a cold, hard look at whether it's actually going in the right direction or not. Um, Oppenman himself sort of gave a a short list of things that he thought his successor should focus on. I think you mentioned a a couple of them. He he said he will continue to champion the the 1% default workplace savings idea. I think he also mentioned expanding auto-enrollment, which of course, you know, that's been on the card since 2017. Uh, measurement of value for money, which is one of his big sort of pushes in the last couple of years, I believe, as well. Liquids and, and CDC, he also mentioned, which I think you, you've raised as well. How realistically, when the new minister sort of takes office, I think you said it, it might be, um, oh, the, na- the name has escaped me. Alex Burkhardt, it looks That's like. Good. I mean, if we're looking, if we are assuming that he takes takes office, uh, what what could we expect him to prioritise? Do, do you have any knowledge of sort of his own personal interests in policy areas or what, what's your sort of reading of his interest? 
Well, he does have the merit of having been on the select committee, not not immediately recently, but previously. So that gives you a, gen, a general backgrounding, which is a good thing. Not all new pensions ministers have even thought about pensions, to be honest. Looks from his history as though he was interested in, in the welfare of children and did various things in that space. So I don't think he comes in with a particularly full agenda. That would be quite unusual. And inevitably, the first thing you do is inherit the stuff that's already happening. And it's quite a bold move to stop stuff that's already happening but actually if you want to make space for new things and things that you want to do occasionally you do have to say the finiteness of the civil service and the legislative capacity is a real constraint it's not a hypothetical you know i I remember coming towards the end of my tenure saying to my team that you know i want to get this pot follows member thing implemented and i want to do this and they were saying well look we've only got so much capacity we've only got so much legislative time if you want to do that something else will have to give and that's not often seen from the outside world because everybody's got their own thing they care about they want doing and you can't do everything at the same time and I I kind of feel I don't entirely agree with Garperman's outgoing list of priorities you know value for money well yeah of course value for money matters but is that top priority I'm not convinced it is. Are there any others just before we move on from Opperman any other priorities that you would have swapped in for the list that that he gave or well, I think it's too long. I mean, you know, in a sense, if everything's priority, nothing is, you know, make the main thing the main thing. The number one priority is progress on uh, on DC savings. It has to be. I suppose I would link to that post-retirement, which he started dabbling with. So we had a call for input earlier this year on what happens post-retirement, because that's like 25 years that virtually no thought has been given to in government. We help you build up a decent DC pot till you're 66 and then cheerio, you know, maybe the FCA will nudge you down an investment pathway if you're lucky for five years. And then who knows, really? So so I kind of think that helping people to build up bigger DC pots and then make better use of them in retirement would be really quite a strong priority for me. Sure thing. Well, I think that seems like a reasonable segue into the next topic then, of course, is one of Opperman's last pronouncements, I suppose you could say, is this is this revelation that some 12 million people are, by uh, his own estimate, uh, undersaving for their retirement. That does amount to about 38% of the, the working age population. Um, I think this this came about in a letter to Work and Pensions Committee Chair uh, Stephen Timms as part of the inquiry into saving for later life. That's examining pensions adequacy uh, and has a focus on things like the gender pensions gap, gig, gig economy workers and such. So if we if we do move on then to talk about this problem of undersaving and how to better sort of equip people for their retirement and in retirement itself, getting perhaps more specific than the, the top level we, we just sort of finished off discussing, what is within the government's power to do? Obviously, Ottoman has mentioned sort of there, there is auto-enrollment expansion, of course, which has been on tape for ages, as has been mentioned. Are there other ways of improving people's sort of retirement resilience that the government actually has it within its power to do? Or is it, as I think Ottoman might actually have said in his letter, largely sort of the role of personal responsibility to fill these gaps? Just a word on the 12 million number, just before we go into the detail. So when I started as minister, one of the things I said early on is how would we know if we were succeeding? And everybody kind of looked a bit blank and said, oh, well, Minister, you've got these performance indicators. And and one of them was, I think, trying to get more people onto pension credit and so on. And it's like, well, yeah, OK, but trying to get telephone handling times for the pension call centres down below so many minutes and all that. And I said, yeah, but what's this all for? How would we know if we'd won? And I said, so why don't we do under saving measures? Why don't we look at what we think is a good retirement, look at where people are heading and see what the gap is? And we published a report in 2011 or 2012. And guess what the number of under saving was? 12 million. Uh, I think from memory, it was pretty, you know, it's one of those things where the answer is always 12 million, I think. Now, you may well say, well, that was a decade ago. What on earth has been going on since? And of course, the thing about under saving measures is you're measuring against a benchmark 
and they don't pick up improvements in getting nearer to the benchmark. So we've got 10 million more people saving for pension. That has to help. That has to mean there is less under saving. But because the extra saving they're now doing is just not enough, that's still short. So most of the people we've auto-enrolled are under saving, even though it's better than nothing. So in a way, this measure slightly understates the progress that has been made. And that's the first observation I'd make. Yeah, we have made some progress. But in terms of what more could be done, I mean, it's, it's ludicrous to say oh, it's all about personal responsibility, because if we thought that was the answer, we wouldn't have bothered with auto-enrollment in the first place. People don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, I must set aside more for my retirement. If auto-enrollment exists, then they assume government sets the rates to be enough. Government sets the state pension rate. Government sets the 8%. These numbers must come from somewhere. And I think your average citizen might well think, well, the government thinks that's enough because that's what they make me do. And if we turn around then and say, well, unless you've done more on top of that, you're going to have a miserable retirement. They might well turn around to us and say, well, when did you tell us that? Why didn't you nudge us into doing more? So I don't think just saying, well, let's just hope everyone does a bit more is, is good enough. In terms of what you can do, I mean, there are two things. There are breadth and depth, if you like. So breadth is people who are completely missed out of auto-enrolment. The self-employed obviously a very big group there. And again, they faffed around and they've done pilots and all the rest of it, but there is only one answer, which is to do this at scale. And by that, I mean about 2 million self-employed fill in a tax return every year. So, you know, you just work out their tax bill, you put a pension contribution on top and they can opt out if they want to. And you probably, you know, in a creative world, you'd say, if you open a pension account for the first time, we'll stick 500 quid in. So that Martin Money Saving Louis expert is writing to 5 million people saying, if you're self-employed and you've never had a pension, you'd be balmy to opt out of year one. And then suddenly you've got a pension and a default contribution. Then the next time you do a tax return, it's really, really simple because there's a pension sitting there waiting to take your pension. So something like that at scale would get millions of self-employed people in. So I think that's, that's a priority because self-employed pension saving is pathetically low and falling. That's quite an achievement to get it lower than it was five years ago. And it's going down. So self-employed, key group. Others, I'm not so sure. People say, I don't know, people on 8,000 a year should be auto-enrolled. Well, maybe, maybe not. The pension is going to be 10,000 a year next year, the state pension. So as an economist, would I, by default, take money off someone who's earning 8,000 to top up their income when they're earning 10 in retirement? I don't think I would. So I don't think the 10,000 threshold is real. People get very exercised by the 10,000 threshold. But with a 10,000 state pension, maybe it's about right. You know, there's issues about people with multiple jobs and all of that. But I think the basic idea is right. And then finally, just in terms of depth, it's this issue we come back to, which is, OK, we've got these 10 million people. They are saving, but they're still in the under-saving bucket, many of them. How do we go beyond 8%? And if you don't want people to opt out, and if you think the cost of living crisis means workers can't pay more or won't pay more, I think gradually you've got to do what the PLSA is saying, is go to 5 plus 5, 5% plus 5%. Now, you may well say, oh my God, we can't ask employers to put more in, recession, all the rest of it. But funnily enough, if employers are paying 5 or 6% wage increases, and you require them to put an extra 1% in a pension this year, all they'll do is pay 5%, not 6%. Yeah, the package will be the same, the cost of the employer will be the same. So what we're really saying is workers' pay rises might be a bit lower in exchange for employers putting more in their pension. And there are no free lunches in any of this. None of this is comfortable. But if you want to get meaningful money going into pensions and you think workers can't be asked to pay more and the government's refusing to pay more, where else is it going to come from, really? So broader coverage, especially the self-employed and higher contributions would be my package. Sure thing. Just, just um, sort of a final question, sort of picking up on, on that. 
as you mentioned, self-employed, there's a question of part-time workers as well. There are a number of people, as you say, saving into pensions, but still technically under-saving. And I know you, you sort of hinted at this as well when you said that if, if you would ask the employers to pay more, there might be the risk of recession and, and so on. How much of this is even within the purview of pensions to manage? I mean, is, is it not the, be- is not the best way to get people saving enough money into their pensions to actually ensure that they are being paid enough in terms of their wage at work or that their part-time work actually pays them the wage that's sufficient for them to be able to afford to make more meaningful contributions? Is this even within the purview of pensions policy? And if pensions makes tweaks to water enrollment, which does force employer contributions to rise, for example, is that not potentially risking at least doing more damage to the long-term goal of, of increasing savings adequacy? Yeah, I mean, if, if you step back, there is no doubt that a healthy, buoyant economy and good real wages is a great foundation for good pensions. You know, of course, that's true. And indeed, you could argue that what DWP are doing on the DB funding side undermines that. Because there is a risk that employers who frankly are doing enough on their pensions are suddenly required to overdo it, put money into DB pension deficits that would have been cleared anyway, that they then can't spend either on investing in the growth of their business or paying into the DC pensions of today's workers. So in a sense, I don't see employers as a bottomless pit. I think there there are points where you don't need to overdo it with employers. But I kind of think, as I say, if we accept that if you ask employers out of today's fixed pot, whatever it is, to put a bit more into pension, recognising they might put a bit less into wages, I kind of think that's probably the right balance at the moment. We do, I mean, you know, maybe not this year, maybe next year, but soon, not when the time is right. I'd start legislating now for next year, that kind of thing. But the beauty of going to five plus five rather than anything else is you don't get opt-outs. The worker is still paying five. Actually, they're getting five for their five, 10 for their five, as it were, not eight for their five. So in many ways, less incentive to opt out. So, you know, the Gordian knot that you have to untie is more money into pensions without more opt-outs. And this feels to me the least worst way of doing it. We'll watch that space. Um, and the subject of the least worst way of doing something to quite possibly the worst way of doing anything. Um, we can move on to this this curious story, which is emerging out of a Thurrock Council. Uh, it concerns some missing £138 million of public money, uh, with some pension funds having invested in the Thurrock scheme. The scheme involved uh, investments in solar panels by uh, and a relationship between a Thurrock's finance director, the council's finance director, and a businessman called Liam Kavanagh. His firm made solar farms. That There was a lot of money which was invested by other councils in Thurrock Council. Thurrock Council invested a lot of money in the solar farms. The solar farm companies then, some of them went into liquidation. The money has disappeared. It's a very peculiar thing to unwind in the Bureau of Investigative Journalism has been doing a yeoman's work trying to make sense of all of this. Sort of the interesting angle I thought from the pensions perspective was sort of this interlocking nature of council and pension scheme investments within an individual council itself. And Thurrock is something like £1.5 billion in debt. So I thought, I'd begin by asking Steve if if it's okay, how does this work? Is there no requirement for stricter oversight than we saw in this case when, say, I think Derbyshire Pension Fund being one of them, goes and invests its members' funds in a council which invests those members' funds in peculiar arrangements like the Soda Farm deal? Is there is it solely on Thurrock Council that the blame falls, or should there have been more checks and balances and due process carried out by the Derbyshire Fund and the other pension funds involved? I think what strikes me about this story, I mean, first of all, is, as you mentioned, it came to light through the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. 
where is the transparency in all of this if it takes, you know, stalwart journalists to dig up the truth, you know, when the council for a long time was saying nothing to see here. Now I gather Thurrock's council's finances have been taken over by Essex County Council, the government people have been suspended. I, I don't want to slander anybody at this point, but clearly it all looks a bit murky. And I think that for me, the first question is transparency, you know, there's a growing awareness that we want to know where our pension fund money is invested. In this case, it was very hard for anybody to know what was going on. As you say, Thurrock was the lead council, but but lots of other councils had lent money. In some cases, pension fund money was involved. And so I think, you know, what do they say? Transparency is the best disinfectant. I think we need much more openness in local government finance. And then obviously, if there's a knock-on effect on pension funds as well. My understanding on kind of local government pension schemes in general, as there has been this move to consolidate, you know, you've got these what they call pools of local government schemes trying to get to scale. There's nothing wrong with investing in solar farms. You know, that'd be a perfectly good investment if it's done properly and the ownership's clear and the contract contracts and so on are clear. But it seems very odd if you know an individual pension scheme is kind of going off doing its own things at the behest of its own local authority. That doesn't kind of seem the way that the, the model was meant to work. And in, in terms of, I guess, there's an interesting question of incentives, which which I think the IBJ, of course, doesn't, is not its perfect to get into. Um, I don't think that there's been very much sort of said about this, but is there an element of over-eagerness by perhaps some pension funds to say, look at sort of our investments, of course, ESG is the top of everyone's agenda at the moment, and say, well, that, that must by definition be a good thing. We need to get that score up as quickly as we possibly can. So perhaps then you know, there's a disincentive to ask some of the questions they might otherwise have been minded to. And do you think there's any sort of element of, of over-eagerness at play here? Or is it, sort of, as you say, principally a question of the lack of transparency? I think there can be a bit of a what you might loosely call a green glow, if that's the right adjective to use of a solar farm. I'm not sure. It probably sounded good, but I assume that, you know, if you are a local authority and you are presented with an opportunity to earn. So what seems to have been happened is that funding was raised through the issuing of bonds. So the council had access to capital. It could allocate its capital to these bonds and then get what apparently was quite a good rate of interest. So if you're a local authority finance officer and you can raise capital relatively cheaply and then get a good flow of interest that more than you know services the cost of the debt and so on, you don't much care what it's invested in, really. I mean, the fact it's got a kind of green tinge to it probably is a bonus, though I don't know if the voters of Thurrock are terribly bothered either way, particularly. You shouldn't be swayed by the fact that it's kind of a bit trendy, as it were, or has good ESG credentials. You know, you've still got to check the financial fundamentals are right. Just finally, then, on, on this topic, uh, before before we close, on the government's response to it, of course, as you mentioned, that the government has placed Essex County Council in charge of the, the financial affairs of Thurrock County Council. Now, I think the, the minister at the time was Greg Clark, who said that you know, he believed that it was the you know, better for other neighbouring local councils to, to bail Thurrock out, essentially. It's better to do this locally than from a central government mandate. Is, would you say that that is the right response to an issue like this when potentially you've got tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of pounds of people's pension money going? Is, is there a case for the government taking more of a, a lead in response to this? And if the money can't be recovered, would the government be compelled perhaps to plug that gap? Or do you broadly agree with the, the position that he's taken, Greg Clark took at the time, which is that actually other local councils are much better placed than government to deal with this problem? I think it would be risky if every local authority knew that if they took a punt and it went badly, the government would bail them out. That that wouldn't be a great incentive structure. So you can see why they're not going down that route. Obviously, the poor ratepayers, as we used to call them, the ratepayers of Thurrock, it would be very harsh for them to 
face the full burden of this certainly in the short term. So one could imagine there'll end up being some sort of bailout package, prolonged period of repayment and all that kind of stuff. That's what would usually happen. You don't take the hit all in one year because it would be unaffordable. You don't ignore it because that would have the wrong incentives. I guess the role of some, you know, if I get my local government geography right, Thurk is in Essex and therefore having an authority that actually already deals with that area and those electors, you know, those, those people, they already have some responsibility towards those people. So there's a kind of logic there, I guess. But certainly central government should be asking questions like, have we got enough control to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen in the next Thurrock? So there's clearly a role, a role for both, I suspect. Sure thing. Excellent. Well, I think that pretty much brings us toward the uh, close for the principal part of the programme. Of course, we, we try and have this always a pensions angle. I think you, you might have a, a monarchic one for us today. <laughs> it's not an anarchic one, but a monarchic <laughs> one. And I suppose if we look forward, obviously we've had a lot of a lot of sadness and period of mourning. And if we look forward now to the to the reign of King Charles III, I think what strikes me is that in all the retrospectives of Her Majesty the Queen's reign is is the world changing over 70 odd years and one very obvious pensionsy way in which the world changes just people living longer and the role of the monarch in sending 100th birthday no longer telegrams but cards that look a bit like that i still remember visiting a, a lady when you know it was still a big thing to have your 100th birthday and there she got the card on one end of the mantel shelf was the card from the queen and on the other end was one from ian duncan smith and the Secretary of State also sends 100th birthday cards. And it went, during austerity, I did gently suggest that perhaps DWP could stop and save a few pounds doing that. But oddly enough, the Secretary of State at the time was keen for them to carry on. So uh, they still get two letters on their 100th birthday. Well, so they, they can do uh, 100 birthday letters, but but not statement season envelopes. <laughs> yes, well, indeed. Excellent. Well, I think that does bring us to the, to the close of the programme. So thank you very much, Steve, for joining us. Uh, thank you to our listeners for listening to us. We will, as ever, be back in two weeks' time, and we uh, hope we'll see you again then. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.